Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. Please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ruth. We begin a new series today, and it's my understanding that Oprah's mother misspelled her name on the birth certificate, and it was supposed to be Orpah. So you can Google that later um, because we want to look at God's Word. The internet will be there for you when you leave today, but right now we desperately need to hear the words of God. So you can check my facts on that later. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you that you are in control, all power, all authority belongs to you, that you reign supreme, and even a misspelled name on a birth certificate is under your sovereign direction and under your control, everything is. We confess that. And Father, we ask you to send your spirit now to open our eyes to see wonderful truths out of your word this morning. Would you incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to getting gain? And then may you transform us as a result of being in your word. And may you get great glory through our lives as we live for you and point to you as our greatest treasure. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a baseball fan, you might know that Bobo Newsom was a pitcher in the 1930s, 40s, and into the 50s, I believe. He had an interesting life, to say the least. There was the time he was driving through the Smoky Mountains and went off a cliff, fell 200 feet in his car, and emerged with only a broken leg. There was a time Bobo was at a mule auction, yes, a mule auction, and a mule kicked the aforementioned leg and broke it again. There was also a time he was pitching and one of the batters dared him. He said, throw the ball to the outside of the plate and I guarantee you I will hit you with the ball. And Bobo, being the quirky man that he was, took the batter up on the dare, threw the ball to the outside of the plate and the batter hit the ball and the ball hit Bobo in the leg and shattered the same leg, and shattered his kneecap. Once there was a game where there was a slow hit uh, down the third baseline, and the third baseman went to grab the ball and throw it to first base. Bobo was standing on the pitcher's mound and forgot to duck. Bobo was hit in the jaw and was knocked out. He came to, he had a broken jaw, and he finished pitching the game and won one to zero. There's something kind of amusing about Bobo's life, how just trouble upon trouble came to Bobo. But there is nothing amusing about Naomi's story that we read about in the book of Ruth. In these first five verses, trouble upon trouble comes to Naomi. Sometimes that's how life is. Sometimes people experience Wave after wave of pain and hardship and suffering. And that is exactly how the book of Ruth begins. Naomi experiences trouble upon trouble, wave upon wave of suffering and sadness and loss. But there is nothing amusing about Naomi's story. What do you do when life falls 
apart. When everything goes wrong in your life, what do you do when everything goes south? When everything goes downhill? Everything seems to be falling apart and your world comes crashing down around you. The book of Ruth will show us how we can rest in the good and sovereign, albeit sometimes hidden, hand of God working in all the details of our lives. I've titled this series, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, because that is exactly what we will see in the life of Ruth and in the life of Naomi. The book of Ruth is about the sovereign God's commitment to his people, despite the darkness and suffering that he brings into their lives. And it's a book about how he always works for his glory and the good of his people. A little bit of introduction here. The author, we don't know who wrote down the story of Ruth. The date was written sometime during the reign of King David because David is mentioned at the end of the book in this little genealogy. Uh, The purpose of the book of Ruth, there are two. There is the oral story and the canonical story. The oral story that was passed down from generation to generation as it was preserved and Israelites shared it with their kids as they went to bed at night as they sat around the fire and told stories. It was preserved orally for generations to celebrate the sovereign but hidden providence of God working behind the scenes to orchestrate events and the human affairs leading to the redemption of Naomi and Ruth from their plight as needy widows. The oral story was preserved to celebrate the remarkable acts of chesed, this Hebrew word which means loyal covenant love. It was preserved to highlight the acts of chesed against the backdrop of one of the darkest times in the history of Israel. The oral story was preserved to demonstrate that God cares for the need of the nation because there's a famine and then he provides food. He cares for the needs of the individual Israelite, Naomi, and he cares for the needs of the foreigner, Ruth. The canonical purpose, the reason the story was written down and was preserved, was to vindicate and to validate the throne of David as God's sovereign choice of David as king. The book begins, the setting of the book begins when there is no king in Israel and it ends by mentioning the future king, King David, in the genealogical record at the end of Ruth. The canonical story was also written to highlight that chesed, that loyal covenant love, which was characteristic of King David's family line. So you have this oral history and this canonical as it's preserved. The setting, as I mentioned, and we'll talk more about it in a minute, is in a dark time of Israel's period during the time of the Judges as recorded in the book of Judges. So that's a quick introduction. The notes will be online this week if you want to get more of that and if you didn't get all of that written down. Here's our big idea today. When things go south, go north. When things go south in your life, go North. What do I mean by that? I mean that when life throws you a million curveballs, when life falls apart, when things go wrong, when you experience tragedy and pain and suffering and death and 
loss, when things go south, when things go downhill in your life, go north to the sovereign God who is in charge of every detail of your life and is orchestrating every detail of your life. Turn your face up when things go downhill. When things are not looking up for you, look up to the sovereign God. Let's look to his word now in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Let's talk about the first half of this verse here. Notice the phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. When was this time in Israel's history when the judges ruled? And why is it significant Why would the average Old Testament saint hear this and say, ooh, ooh, that time when the judges ruled? Ouch, that's not a good time in our history. As we seek to answer these questions, we will see that this verse is loaded theologically. It's packed, it's stuffed with theology. The setting at the very beginning of the book of Ruth is so significant. The setting for the book of Ruth was during a time recorded in the book of Judges, which comes right before the book of Ruth in our English Bibles. What was life like in Israel and in Judah during the times recorded in the book of Judges? To answer that, let's turn one page over to the book of Judges to look at the last verse. If you're not good with flipping through your Bible and a preacher tells you to go somewhere, all you got to do this time is turn one page. Judges 21-25 tells us what life was like when the judges were ruling, what life was like when the events of the story of Ruth happened. And he says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was the time in Israel's history after they had come out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, after Joshua led them into the promised land and they began settling there. It's the time before King Saul, a time before King David. The nation was to go into the land, settle the land, wipe out their enemies and experience God's blessing. But what happened after the book of Joshua is that the people of God began worshiping other gods and assimilating into Canaanite culture. There's actually a cycle in the book of Judges where you have the people of God saying, no thank you to Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, and they turn to Baal and Asherah and other gods and begin worshiping them. And so God in his great love disciplines his children, sends enemies to oppress them, sends famine and plagues to get their attention so that they will cry out to God. And so he then, when they cry out to God, he raises up a judge or a deliverer and delivers them from the oppression of their enemy and restores them and the blessing to their land. But as you read the book of Judges, the cycle keeps continuing. Once again, they will say, no, thank you to the Lord. They will worship other gods and the cycle goes on and on. This is what was happening when the events of Ruth unfold. The time of the judges was the time when the nation of Israel turned away from Yahweh and they were serving other gods. This was a time when whatever you thought was right for you was right. This was a time when people did what they wanted to do. This was a time when people's eyes, when people's thoughts, when people's minds determined what was right And what was moral? It kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? You see, one of the reasons we're studying Ruth 
is because even though it is 3,000 years old, it is strangely relevant to us and our time in history because we live in a day and age when people do what is right in their own eyes and even some churches and Christians will deviate from God's word to determine what is right. So the setting of the book of Ruth was a morally bankrupt time for Israel, a time when people did whatever they wanted. There was no truth, no right way. Whatever was true for you was true. There was no right, there was no wrong. Whatever you wanted to do was okay. Of course, they had God's law. They had his word. There was a standard. But they said no thank you to that. But there was a remnant of people in Israel still, as there always is. There's always a core group of people who say, in spite of the way the nation turns, we're going to serve Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. So there was still a core of people, core group in Israel who loved the Lord and wanted to serve them. But collectively, as a whole, the nation had turned away from serving the Lord. The book of Ruth is going to show us how we are to exist as the community of faith in a dark time when our culture and some churches do whatever is right in their own eyes. Notice how Judges 21-25 points out that there was no king. This is significant because the book of Ruth will be a testimony to the fact that the Lord preserved the lineage of David through the dark Days of the judges. Everything that happens in this book through the prayers and actions of God's people is a testimony to God's determination to produce King David from the depressing and chaotic days of the judges. And we know ultimately that the book of Ruth is about God's determination to produce King Jesus from the line of King David. You see, this world is a world full of darkness, the darkness of sin because of Adam and his sin in the garden and what it brought about in this world. And we could never live in a way that would gain us access to God and acceptance. We needed someone to come, a God-man, fully God, fully man, those two natures united in one person. We needed Jesus Christ to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we all deserved, to be resurrected from the dead by the power of the Spirit, which we could never pull off. We needed him to do what Adam did not do, what Adam could not do, what you and I could not do. We needed a Savior, the God-man, because of the darkness that is in us called sin. And because of Adam's sin, we live in a dark, fallen world that has gone south. Understand this, Grace. When you experience dark days because we live in a dark, fallen, broken world, understand that God is still moving and working behind the scenes, even if you can't see his hand. Just as an artist uses dark colors to finish and complete their picture, the Lord uses times of darkness to paint the picture of his sovereignty and his goodness. Ruth wants to tell you a secret today. Naomi wants to tell you a secret today. Whatever is happening in your life right now, 
Whatever is happening in this country right now, whatever is happening in this world, understand that God is moving and working and using the darkness to bring about good to his people and glory for his name. That's what the book of Ruth is about. Don't you love that you serve a God that says, I can take the darkness and the sinfulness of men and I can use it to paint the picture of my sovereignty and my wisdom and my goodness for my people to see and to delight in. I love that we serve a God who is not surprised and is not startled by the actions of sinful men, but he says, I knew it would happen, and I knew I would use it to display my glory. The story of Ruth is set in a dark period of Israel's history. It will remind us that when things go south, We must go north to God. During the time of the judges, the nation of Israel, collectively, even though there was a small remnant, but collectively, God's covenant people went south spiritually. They went south spiritually because verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The mention of a famine is very significant. Why was there a famine in Israel? The narrator does not indicate the cause of the famine. He does not tell us outright why there is a famine. But from a theological perspective, we can surmise that the famine is a result of the Israelites, the people of God, turning away from Yahweh, their sovereign Lord. The famine was a judgmental act of God on his people. He was disciplining his people Because they had turned away and he wants to capture their hearts because he knows that he and he alone can satisfy them. According to the covenant curses outlined in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the Lord told Israel, if you abandon me and you chase after other gods and you persist in rebellion, then I will respond by raising up enemies to oppress you. In fact, the Lord says, if you don't serve me with gladness, you will serve your enemies all the days of your life. And the Lord said he would send enemies to destroy their crops. He would send wild beasts through their lands to eat their children. And the land would be occupied by foreigners, just like the book of Judges describes. They would be under oppression. And God also said that he would cut off the rains and he would send famine. Why does God do this? To paraphrase Leviticus 26, the Lord says, If you love me and serve me, I'll send rain. You will have blessing. You will have tons of food to feed your teenagers. You will experience my blessing. But if you turn from me, I'll stop the rain and you will starve. Your enemies will conquer you. Wild beasts will eat your kids. It will not be pretty. I will do it to capture your hearts, to love and serve me. There was a famine in Israel during this time because the people of God had turned away from the Lord and they were doing what was right in their own eyes. The people of God went south spiritually. This national southern decline of Israel prompted one man and his family to go south to Moab. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the 
the man was Elimelech in the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The story of the book of Ruth begins in Bethlehem, in Judah. The irony of crisis here is apparent because Bethlehem, Beit Lechem in Hebrew, means house of bread. The house of bread has no food for this family. There's a famine in the house of bread. We have a man from the house of bread who went to sojourn with his family in the land of Moab, southeast of Judah. First, let's talk about this man. His name is Elimelech, which means, my God is king. His wife's name is Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. Elimelech and Naomi had two sons. Their names were Machlon and Kilion. Don't let those H's in English trick you. You have to read them with that Hebrew guttural sound. I'm going to need some water to do it for you. Machlon and Kilion. Maybe not that much guttural, but you got to read them with that sound. Their names, Machlon and Kilion, mean sick and dying. These are not good names to name your baby boys when they are born. There's something up in this story. So Elimelech takes his family, they pack their bags, sell their belongings, they leave Podunk, Bethlehem, the house of bread, and they head southeast to the land of Moab. So what's the big deal here? There was a famine in the land, and this man moves to another place to provide for his family. It seems like the wise thing to do, right? Maybe, maybe not. The narrator, the author here, never says outright that this was a bad move. He never tells us that this was wrong. He doesn't spill much ink here on this because he's focusing on the plight that has come to Naomi, the tragedy and the wave upon wave of sorrow that comes to her. That is what he is enforcing here in verses one through five. He is reiterating that, saying, I want you to grasp this truth. So he doesn't tell us this was a bad move for my God is king to leave the house of bread and go southeast to Moab. He never tells us that. But any Israelite hearing or reading this story would know that this was not a wise move. It's significant that Elimelech journeyed to Moab for several reasons. One, he had to cross the Jordan River and go to Moab where there was food. So obviously the famine was localized to Judah, was localized to Israel. The Moabites had food. In fact, the Hebrew says in verse 2 that he went into the fields of Moab. Many key moments in the book of Ruth take place in the fields. But why was it a big deal that any Israelite family would settle in Moab? It was a big deal because the Israelites and the Moabites did not like each other. Hatfield and McCoys here. The Cowboys and the Redskins the Raiders and Chargers? I don't know. Still, still working into the Central Coast sports thing here. But my general impression is that nobody likes the Raiders. You pick your team and the Raiders. The Israelites and the Moabites can't stand each other. Why? 
Because one, Moab means in Hebrew, from father. The Moabites come from an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughter in Genesis 19. The Moabites also didn't let Israel pass through their territory as they were leaving Egypt. They said, you can't come through here. So the Israelites don't like them for that. The Moabite women seduced 24,000 Israelite men in Numbers 25, and the men whored after these daughters of the Moabites, and the Lord killed 24,000. The Israelites also were to exclude the Moabites from the assembly of the Lord, according to Deuteronomy 23. This will prove interesting because Ruth is a Moabitess. And in the book of Ruth, she acts more like an Israelite than Naomi does. Fifth, the recent oppression of the Israelites by the Moabites and their king, King Eglon. Judges chapter 3. Interesting story. You might want to read it. Relations were not good between Israel and Moab. But notice too in verse 1 that Elimelech went to sojourn in Moab. The word sojourn here suggests that he planned to go to Moab, wait out the famine, and then return to Bethlehem. He came up with his own solution when the famine came to the land. Instead of returning to God with the people and calling the nation to national repentance and crying out to God for mercy because they turned away from him, instead of staying with the community of faith, he leaves. Instead of going north to God in prayer with all of the Israelites, he goes southeast to Moab to be with the people of Moab. He designed his own solution. Let me ask you, where do you go in times of hardship? Where do you go when things go south in your life? Do you turn to the Lord or to your own understanding of why things are happening the way they are? Do you run away from the church when things go south? Do you pull yourself away from believers when things go downhill? Do you hide out and try to handle problems on your own without God or without the church's help? We are a covenant community, the family of God, the body of Christ. When tragedy comes into your life, do you pull away? Are you disconnected? I've seen it a million times. Tragedy comes into someone's life. They begin to question God and they pull away from the very place where God is in the church. When things go south, grace, go north. Elimelech and his family move on to Moab and then life begins to unravel for Naomi. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Machlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Life is beginning to unravel for Naomi. Her husband, Elimelech, dies. So Naomi is left with her two sons. Machlon and Kilion marry Moabite women. One is named Orpah, the other Ruth. They live for about 10 years, and then tragedy strikes again. Machlon and Kilion die. The narrator says in verse 5 that her sons, but in Hebrew it's really her babies. He doesn't use the normal Hebrew word for sons here, banim. He uses the Hebrew word yeladim, which he uses in Ruth 4.16 to uh, describe Obed, the new baby boy that will be born to Ruth 
and Boaz. And it's like he's got these bookends here. You get this baby boy being born at the end who will bring redemption to Naomi's life. But you've got here at the very beginning, instead of saying her sons died, he says her baby boys died. Naomi lost her babies. Get the narrator's point here. Enter into and feel the tragedy and the sorrow that Naomi is feeling. She lost her babies. Though they were grown men, they were her baby boys. Her husband is gone. Her baby boys are gone. The narrator condenses all of these years into a few verses because he wants us to feel the suddenness and the weight and the gravity of Naomi's loss. One famine, two marriages, three funerals, three widows, and ten years all in five verses. Life can be like that. Life can fall apart in five verses. In just five verses, Naomi's life falls apart and comes crumbling down around her. Isn't that the way life is? It can just fall apart in five verses. Just like that. And everything goes south. Let me ask you, where do you go When things go south in your life, do you turn to God and to the church community? Listen, when things go south, it is a dangerous thing to disconnect from the church, the community of faith. We hold on to faith. We are saved by grace through faith. We are people of faith. You need to stay here when things go south in the community of faith because we will encourage you and tell you to hang on to God, to hang on by faith. It is a dangerous thing to go south spiritually when things go south in your life. When things go south, go north. When life deals you blow after blow after blow after blow and there's hardship after hardship after hardship and there's loss after loss and suffering after suffering and pain after pain and you don't know why things are happening the way that they are, go north to God. Go north to the sovereign God who is orchestrating every detail of your life. Pray, seek his face, trust Trust Him, cry out to Him, scream at Him, yell at Him, pour out your heart to Him, but go to Him and do not go south. Stay with His people. This is where God is, right here in this church body. Leviticus 26, which I read earlier, gives the promise, and frankly, I believe it is the big idea of the Bible because it's scattered all over the Bible as if God wants us to get the point. Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will dwell with you. That's what the Bible is all about. God dwells with us. He is here, Grace. And when things go south in your life, go north to God. Stay put. Stay with his people. Trust him. 
when the dark storm clouds of life move in over your life and they don't seem to move on. You can trust a good, sovereign God. You can trust Jesus with all of your heart. That's what happened to William Cooper as he experienced sorrow upon sorrow and tragedy in his life. God in his grace brought John Newton, one of the most joy-filled pastors in church history, brought John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, into the life of William Cooper as he struggled with severe depression and as he struggled with suicide. But out of his darkness, he penned some of the most wonderful hymns that we have One of his hymns, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, would be very appropriate for us to look at this morning. He says, in his darkness, he says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Here's my favorite line. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Trust him, grace. The dark clouds that you fear moving in over your life or the dark clouds that have moved in and they're settled on your life and they will not move. Let me tell you, they are big with mercy. They are pregnant. They are stuffed. They are bloated with mercy. And one day they will break either in this life or in the life to come with big mercy and blessing upon your head. Behind the frowning providence, behind the dark clouds that hover over your life and never seem to leave behind that frowning providence is the smiling face of your God. That's what Naomi could not see as her life unraveled before her eyes, as her life crumbled before her very eyes. And that's what we often can't see when the dark storm clouds of life hover and never seem to move on. So we're left wondering as we come to the end of verse 5, what will become of widowed Naomi? She's now an Israelite widow living behind enemy lines, southeast of Judah in Moab. She has no husband to care for her, no sons to protect her. In a patriarchal society and world where women needed men to survive, she has nothing. She's poor, she's homeless. And it's the time of the judges when wickedness reigns and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And we wonder, will Naomi make it? Will she survive? As we study this book over the next few weeks and months, we will begin to identify with these characters. 
How does God's sovereignty fit in with our trials and sufferings? Where is God when it seems like life is falling apart at the seams? Where is God when the dark storm clouds hang over our lives and never seem to move on? Where is the God who gives and then takes away? Let me tip you off, Grace. He is here. Even though he is hidden and we don't see his hand, sometimes he is here. The book of Ruth is as much a book about Naomi and Ruth as it is about us. But ultimately, it's a book about God. A book about the God who is here with his people. A book about the God who is here in the midst of of our pain. A book about the God who is here in the midst of our storms, here in the midst of our loss, here in the midst of our grief, here in the midst of our questions. He is here in the midst of this church, his bride, the community of faith. This is a book about the infinitely wise God, the sovereign God who has all of this world under his control. This is a book about the good God that we serve. This is a book about the God who gives and takes away. This book is about a God who deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Trust him, Grace. He is trustworthy. Whatever's happening in your life and you don't know why and you may never know why, trust him. He is infinitely wisdom. He knew this would come in your life now. He knew the storm clouds that are hovering over your life right now. He knew them 10,000 years ago. He knew them 10 million years ago. And he will purpose in it and through it to bring good to you and glory to him and good to others. You can trust him, Grace. I know it's hard. I know there's pain but he is trustworthy. And one day, as I've mentioned before, one day he will roll out the blueprints of your life as you stand before him and he will say, come here, my sweet child. Let me show you what I was doing when those storm clouds hovered over your life and and you cried out to me and I did not answer necessarily in the way you wanted me to. Let me show you how I was working and purposing in and through it to bring glory to my name and to bring good to your life and good to the people around you. And when he rolls out the blueprints and he shows you, let me show you, here's what I was doing. Dark storm clouds in this situation. Let me show you how it brought glory to me. Let me show you how the kingdom of God was advanced. Let me show you how the gospel advanced in this situation. Let me show you the good it brought to your life. When he does that, your jaw will drop and you will drop to your knees and you will say, you are the infinitely wise God. You know what is best. I praise you and I would not go back and change it if I could, God, because it was your plan and the greatest good came out of my darkness. So trust him, grace. He is trustworthy, You don't have all the details. You will not get all of the details. 
but he knows them. And he is working for your good because he loves you. He is working to bring glory to his name. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is infinitely wise and he knows what is best. And if the dark storm clouds are what is best in your life right now, you can trust him for that. He gives and he takes away, but we can still cry out, blessed be your name. He is good grace. He is trustworthy. He is good. And so we would do well to cry out with the psalmist who said, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. We need to learn his truth again this morning, that he's good, he does good, he's in control, and he will bring great things out of your trial for his glory and for your good. Let's go north in prayer to this God now. Father, even preaching a message for the second time, I am yet again humbled because I know in my life I value, I covet, I crave safety, security, relief, and I don't want refinement, and I don't want change. I want ease. I want peace. And yet, God, it is oftentimes in the dark storms of life that you are working to change me, to refine me. God, may I understand when I do cry out for relief that you may not answer way I want to. May you cause us to see that you've brought the dark storm clouds into our lives, but that you have a plan and you have a purpose and that we can trust you for that. As we study the book of Ruth in the coming weeks, God, would you cement in our thinking that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that you are good, and that you're working our situations in our lives to draw us closer to you, to change us, to bring glory to your name and to bring good and blessing to our lives. God, the clouds that we fear, that we dread, would you help us to see that soon they will break with blessings on our head. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.